Good evening. My name is Jojo. I'm a very grateful, very fortunate alcoholic. And uh, <clears throat> I guess I, I can't explain how I feel. Um, the pleasure of being here in Little Rock, Arkansas, and being able to share with you this weekend. Thus far, ha how have the convention been for you guys? Been great? <laughs> well, I sure hope you feel that way when I sit down. <laughs> I like to welcome the new people. Uh, if there's any new people here for the first time, especially to the first convention, is there any new people for the first time at their Young People's Convention and Alcoholics and I'm, please raise your hand. to personally welcome you to the convention and to <clears throat> for being a part of Alcoholics Anonymous and I hope as you continue in Alcoholics Anonymous that you get this great opportunity again and I know for me that being a part of conventions and being able to go around the different conventions and meet different people has been one of the greatest privileges that I've had since I've been sober and uh, for that I'm very grateful um, I've been sitting here wondering you know what am I going to say I mean I will I'm one of those people that um, don't have any patents on, on what I'm going to say. Uh, sometimes I say things that I don't have no business saying. Um, <laughs> sometimes I say things that are uh, profound, and I said, you know, where the hell did that come from? And, um, and I think, you know, the thing that I like to share, especially because this is a young people's conference, and I don't know if there's... Without taking any more of a time, I would like to introduce to you Jojo S. from Los Angeles, California. My name is Jojo. I'm a very grateful, very fortunate alcoholic. And uh, <clears throat> I guess I, I can't explain how I feel um, the pleasure of being here in Little Rock, Arkansas, and being able to share with you this weekend. Thus far, ha how have the convention been for you guys? Been great? <laughs> Well, I sure hope you feel that way when I sit down. <laughs> I like to welcome the new people. Uh, if there's any new people here for the first time, especially to the first convention, is there any new people for the first time at their Young People's Convention and Alcoholics and I'm, please raise your hand. like to personally welcome you to the convention and to <clears throat> for being a part of Alcoholics Anonymous and I hope as you continue in Alcoholics Anonymous that you get this great opportunity again and I know for me that being a part of conventions and being able to go around the different conventions and meet different people has been one of the greatest privileges that I've had since I've been sober and uh, for that I'm very grateful um, I've been sitting here wondering you know what am I going to say I mean I will <clears throat> I'm one of those people that um, don't have any patents 
on, on what I'm going to say. Uh, sometimes I say things that I don't have no business saying. Um, <laughs> sometimes I say things that are uh, profound, and I said, you know, where the hell did that come from? And, um, and I think, you know, the thing that I like to share, especially because this is a young people's conference, and I don't know if there's a, a theme for this or not. I've been, I can't remember if there was a theme. Actually, be honest with you, I didn't uh, uh, read the, the uh, your brochure. I mean, I just glanced it. I saw my name and shut it up. You know. <laughs> I try not to ego trip, you know, but I wanted to make sure I found my name. And... Uh, Actually, so I don't know if there's a theme for the conference, but you know what I like to do is, is I tonight would like to represent, if there's anything that I can, I like to represent what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about, and that's recovery. I like to talk about what my experiences have been in Alcoholics Anonymous, what it was like before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, briefly, because I like for you to know and get an opportunity to see the whole total picture of what it's like to be sober, stay sober, and to go through whatever it is that got me to where I'm at tonight. You know, because when I think about my life and where I've come from, it blows me away. I'm one of those people that have to take, you know, turn around and pinch myself and say, God, is this truly happening to me? You know, I was very young when I got here, and... um when I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, there were not too many young people in, in the program. And I, I know you're wondering, well, how long has she been sober? Y'all hold on, ladies, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> <clears throat> I was 23 years old. And I know if you're looking at me, you don't think I'm over 25. <laughs> <laughs> hold on, I'm going to tell you that, too. <laughs> If you be a real alcoholic, you're sitting out there and you're doing the same thing that I used to do when I first come to that meeting. I looked at those women that was behind, you know, in the audience and behind the podium and I think, God, is she beautiful. You know, and... Jesus Christ up there, you know. And I looked at the women and they were had their makeup on and they looked good and they smelled good and and I said, Why not me? You know, why can't I look like that? What happened to me? And uh you see what I discovered is that those women had been sober for a while. <laughs> And I still had the smell of booze coming out of my pores, and I still had drugs emitting from my breath. And so people knew that I was not sober yet, you know. And um, I knew that there would come a day. Well, actually, I really didn't know because I didn't have any that kind of confidence. But I hoped and I prayed that that day would come for me. And today... Um, I, I look back today, and I'm one of those women that I sat out there in that audience and uh, wondered, wonder what can she tell me about sobriety? You know, how much does she know, and who is she anyway? You know, and how old is she? Is she old enough to tell me anything? And uh, I'm here to tell you that uh, Lord willing and the creek don't rise in November the 3rd of this year. I'll be 11 years sober. <laughs> 
if you're smart, you already know how old I am. <laughs> but for those of you that's mentally not functioning because of sobriety that hasn't set in yet, I'll be 35 my birthday. And uh, I tell you, if anybody had told me that I was going to be 35 and be sober and alcoholic, and I'm let alone and setting foot in Little Rock, Arkansas. <laughs> believed it you know not only that you know in the beginning of this this uh meeting they were talking i heard um don or john or whatever your name house of bathroom <laughs> say um say we're gonna let leslie introduce the speaker and she's good too you know now you know this is real strange about alcoholics anonymous do you guys know how y'all determine that somebody's good is by how sick that you've heard they are. <laughs> the sicker you are in Alcoholics Anonymous, the gooder you are. Oh, she's good. <laughs> I heard her before that. that she is real good. You ought to hear her. <laughs> to share with you how sick I got in my drinking and using. And you say, I'm good. For God's sake, it's paid off. <laughs> this is a real trip. <laughs> this is a real trip. I'm so glad that I get the opportunity to be here and to be an example of what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. And before I really get started, I would like to share, and especially for the benefit, and I hate to sound like this, but I hope you understand, for the benefit of those that's out in the audience, that's one of me, and there's two of you. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to know that what I'm about to share is my story, and it's not a typical black story, but it happens to be my story. I am not here to represent the typical black people all over the world. What I am here to represent is the black person from the black neighborhood that was able to find their way into Alcoholics Anonymous and be a black representative of Alcoholics Anonymous. And for that, I am, you know, this disease, they say, is not prejudice, but look around the room and tell me different. Tell me why when I was here having dinner, we had all black servants, and yet there's not any in this room recovering. Tell me that this disease is not prejudice. And I tell you that it's not, you, you happen to be wrong, that we are afflicted. It's some, for some reason, it's hard for me to understand why the knowledge of Alcoholics Anonymous is not where it can be utilized too, and that's in my neighborhood. And how I got here, is, and I need to share that with you, gets back into my story how the knowledge and the education that there was such a program available in the world for me. Because I know today that if there had not been someone who had graced these halls somewhere 
and was able to give the word to me that you an alcoholic, you need some help, I would be dead today. Because I'm a real alcoholic and I'm a real drug user. I used everything that you can name of and I drank everything you can think of. And I'm the kind of woman alcoholic that went down the path of road of destruction and I hope and pray that I never have to go back that way again. I'm not the proudest ex-alcoholic in the world, world for what I've done. But I am proud to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the mere fact that you gave me an opportunity to resurrect myself right here in Alcoholics Anonymous and to be a whole human being makes me grateful. It makes me feel that there's a purpose in life and what you contributed to my life, I can never repay you back. I can never, ever repay you back for what you've allowed my life to turn out to be. And that's one of the reasons that I'm here tonight, to share with you that no matter who you are, where you come from, or how low you've been, if there's just a spark of hope, Alcoholics Anonymous will blow faith into your breath. And you will be able to sit in these meetings and allow faith to be able to grow all over your body. And you will know the difference between hope and faith. I came to you people with no faith, with just a little hope, and I stayed long enough to know today that I am not hopeless, but I am faith. I have faith inside of me. You know, My drinking started when I was real young. I don't even know when I took my first drink. I really don't know. I do know I can remember my first drunk and I was 13 years old and I was running around with a bunch of girls. And I was one of those dare sisters, you know. And um, somebody in the crowd said, I dare you to drink one of those little glasses of vodka straight down. And uh, if you do it, I'll do it, you know. And I said, fine, I'll do it. And uh, so we were riding around in some old man's car, you know, because that's what they did in my neighborhood. The old men like to pick on the young girls. And I know some of you old men out there know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I drank that vodka down. And when I came to, because <laughs> I see it, that's how it affected me immediately. Uh, I remember partying, and I can remember when the lights start going dim. I don't remember when the lights went out, but I can remember when the lights start going dim, and I was grasping like I was trying to cut the, flip, the switch back on, like, don't go out, you know, and uh, I blacked out. You know, on my very first drunk, I blacked out. And when I came to, I was in my mom's house. I was fully dressed the next morning. And I came downstairs, and there was something that I felt that I hadn't felt in a long time. And that was, um, I didn't feel any human pain. You know, and I was in a little pain at 13 years old. I mean, emotional pain of not being able to fit in and feeling less than and didn't have the boyfriend that I wanted to have and felt inadequate toward my girlfriends. And in my own immediate family, I had a lot of feelings going on of being isolated and different and not loved. Now, I come from a family where there was nine kids and my mom was there and we always had a father around he may not have been our real father but we always had a father around 
And uh, I just had those feelings going on of, of, of one, you know, there was something terribly wrong. Like I was the black sheep of the family, and I mean literally speaking. <laughs> and uh, so when I drank it, when I came to that morning, those feelings were gone. I didn't have those feelings. And um, somebody told me the next day, girl, you sure had a good time. And I said, I did. They said, yeah, let me tell you what you did. <laughs> and they went on to tell me what I did, and I said, I did that. They said, yeah, girl, you took your clothes off. And I said, no. Surely I didn't do that. I know I didn't have the kind of body that should have came out of, you know, penthouse or something. So I knew I... I said, I did that. They said, yeah, you really had a good time. Everybody enjoyed you. I said, I bet they did. <laughs> then I got that feeling of remorse and guilt. And I knew in order for me to go out the next night and have a good time and look people in the face that I was going to have to get drunk again or I have to drink, you know. And uh, when I went back out... Uh, and they did just that. They looked at me real funny and said, I heard you got towed down last night, you know. Uh, I drank. <laughs> I, I had to drink to get over the feelings. And that's the pattern of my drinking. You know, if I wasn't going to talk to you about sobriety, I could sit down because that's my whole drunk log. As I drank, I blacked out, passed out, or somebody knocked me out. You know, and I was always that blubbering, blubbling idiot in the crowd. I was always the one that got real good drunk, foamed at the mouth, <laughs> talked out of the side of my neck, you know, and people used to ask me, what do you mean? You know, <laughs> I wanted to be very articulate. And believe me, with an eighth grade education, it's hard to talk about uh, demoralization when you can't even pronounce the word. <laughs> you know. But I wanted to impress the young man in my life that I was a lady. You know, that was a goal of mine, is I wanted to be a lady. You know. And um, I can remember thinking when I was young that Saturday night, this might have been a Tuesday. Saturday night, I'm going to get dressed up. I'm going to go down to the bar. I'm going to drink like a lady. I'm going to leave there just feeling toasted. You know, that was my aim. I just wanted to get a buzz on where I could enjoy myself and perhaps be chosen that night. <laughs> See, I wanted some man to say, hey, baby, what you doing tonight? <laughs> You know, I wanted to be sweetly seduced. And uh, that was my aim. And that Saturday night would come by, and I'd try to look as good as I possibly could at that time. When you're an alcoholic and you're getting into the real realms of your alcoholism, uh, you have a, there seemed to be a, a perception when you look in the mirror that ain't quite there, but you don't know it. You know, you look at yourself and you say, God, baby, you look good. <laughs> and your lipstick is hanging over to the side and the wig is twisted. The wig is twisted a little bit. And you clamp down on one eyelid. 
<laughs> oh, you got some glasses that them fell off your face and broke, and, and one of the rims is off, but you push it on your face. Maybe they won't notice the rim, you know, the, the one arm is gone. <laughs> and I go down there on Saturday night and set up at the bar with no money. See, I have no money. But I used to look over the crowd and think, who owed me? <laughs> or who I could get tonight and see. And I had the kind of personality that when I got loaded, I was humorous and funny, and people would come up and talk to me. I'd make them laugh for a few minutes. And before they laugh, I'd say, I don't, you know, buy me something to drink. You know? Well, what you want, JoJo? Whatever you want to buy me, just buy me. I said, matter of fact, make it a double. <laughs> I wanted to make sure before they left that I got my money's worth, you know. And I'd have two or three drinks set in front of me, you know, um, sometimes, not all the time. I can't tell you that I was, I, I became very good. I almost became an expert at getting people to buy me something to drink, you know. And, uh, and I think after a while they bought the drink because they felt sorry for me, not because they really wanted to buy it for me, but... Um, I would um, be drinking, and Saturday night around 2 o'clock, the bars in my hometown closed at 2.30. Around 2 o'clock, I was wasted. And, and it was like I was looking around the crowd, and, and everybody was leaving with somebody, and I was still sitting up there at the bar. And I couldn't quite figure it out, because by this time, the wig not only is around on the side, but it had turned all the way around. And the front's in the back, and the, <laughs> the back's hanging over my eyes, and I'm still trying to flutter my eyes. And, <laughs> baby, I was a lost call for the night, you know. And I tried to get off that bar and stumble out. Nine times out of ten, I'd fall down. Nine times out of ten, I always fell down. Somebody would help me out. People would feel sorry for me and take me home. I was not sweetly seduced, you know. <laughs> I was taken home and, and dropped off because everybody knew my home, knew me, and everybody knew my mom, and they'd knock on the door and say, Miss Lou, here's JoJo. And uh, we brought her home. Uh, she's in real bad shape, you know, and I'd go in the house. And my drinking caravaned on for a few years, and... Uh, and I'm not going to go through a whole great big drunk with you because that should just about tell you what it was like for me. Now, do I, don't, you know, do I really need to elaborate on the drugs and the prostitution and the, the, the gay relationships and all? Do I don't need to do that, do I? I'm a real alcoholic, and you know that, you know. But that became a pattern of mine. From 13 to 23, I did a whole lot of suffering. I didn't do too much good drinking. I did a whole lot of stuff, and I went from Tom, Dick, and Harry, and Mary, you know, <laughs> looking for someone to fill that void that was inside of me. See, I had a great big void, and it didn't seem to me that anything was going to fill it. I had went through every man in my hometown trying to find someone to make me feel like a lady. I always turned my will in my life over to a man. There was never any problem with me doing that. You know, I would tell him, I know what you wanted in a lady. Tell me what you want, and I'll try to do that. 
Teach me how to become a lady. Now, can you imagine a woman asking a man to teach me how to become a lady because I knew what they wanted and I didn't feel like I measured up. But because I was lonely, I needed people in my life and I wanted to have the kind of man. See, my dream, I had this dream where I was going to find this, this wonderful, wonderful pimp that wore a broke down hats and pink suits and king size shoes and drove a long Cadillac. I was going to have that in my life. Because, see, women in my hometown, you know, there was a couple that had that. And I had, you know, I'm one of those competitors. And I look on the corners and, and they, I mean, they had it together. I mean, they could, come here, John, you know. I mean, they were, they were handling it. And little poor me, I was one of those little alcoholics on the corner that, and John's got to know me very well. They'd always show up with a, a little nickel bag of weed and a six-pack of beer. Now, you know I'm an alcoholic. And what came first? You know, and I drank the beer and get high on the pot, and we take care of business, and somehow I'd wake up and I'd say, damn, I forgot to ask him for the money. <laughs> You know, so I said, my God, you know, done forgot to ask for the money. And the next week I do it all over again with the same John, you know, because he brought a nickel bag of weed and six pack of beer. That's kind of disease that I have, total destruction, you know. And through it all, after I began to make the hospitals and I began to make the jails, because that becomes a pattern of a real alcoholic. We do that. Somewhere, and I can't tell you exactly where, someone suggested that I was, well, I know my first husband. I got married when I was 18. I snatched up the assistant manager of Woolworths. <laughs> <laughs> and we got married on the 4th of July. By Halloween, I was gone, you know. Trick or treat, I left. <laughs> and uh, something very significant came out of that marriage and I believe it was the fact that this man had been around and he had some knowledge of what an alcoholic was now he, at that time he was not an alcoholic he was not into too much of anything but he had, a, um, had the ism part because he couldn't stay on a job but he wasn't drinking, he wasn't using but he did have a uh, potential gambling habit at that time and uh, I can remember him saying, you just like your mom, uh, you're an alcoholic, you know. And, I, you know, I cut him off. As soon as he said that, I cut him off just like that. How dare you call me an alcoholic, you know. And uh, at this time, I was drinking beer just to go to sleep at night, you know. And I knew my life was a total mess at this time. I knew it. Uh, I was even praying to God for some help. And, and it seemed to me that God wasn't coming through. But um, my disease had not reached full maturity at this time. And, and so I left at 18 years old from Ohio, and I went to New Jersey to allow my disease to progress worse. From 18 to 23, I mean, I totally went down. You know, um, my husband has a favorite saying. I was so low down that getting up just didn't cross my mind. <laughs> you know, and that's what it was like for me. I didn't think. I had accepted in my mind, my, my, especially the last time I came out of the hospital, I was 22 years old. 
And ladies and gentlemen, I need to tell you about the physical aspects of this disease because it's very important that you know. Because there's like, I was talking to a young lady this evening who's 17 years old and has 46 days of sobriety. And I look at her and I can see sparkles in her eyes and I see uh, the glow on her cheeks. And for me, it wasn't like that. I got to you people at 23 years old and I couldn't walk. I had alcohol paralysis that were beginning to set in my legs. I weighed 85 pounds. I was just about ready to die. My eyes had sunken back into my head. My face had drawn in. You could see the skeleton feature in my face. You knew it was just a moment uh, sooner that I was just laid down and died. My mom and, and my family had gotten so worried about me and so scared for me, they took out insurance just in case I died. They'd be able to bury me. That's how bad I was. I couldn't control my physical body. And if you need that broken down more, I couldn't control waist down. I couldn't get to the restroom, you know. Um, the disease had me in its grips, and I really did not think I was going to ever come out. I had accepted the fact at 22 years old that I was going to die a drunken woman. I knew that one night somehow I'd either just not come out of it or somebody was going to kill me because I had a terrible mouth and I jumped into cars with men and I always went here. And I remember one trick, one time uh, getting in a van and taking me about 50 miles away from my hometown in an old briar patch where there was nothing but trees and stuff and, and uh, throwing me out of the back of his van. You know, and that man could have shot me, could have killed me, could have done anything. But for some reason, he just pulled off. And I had to get home the best way I could. But I have a sister that wasn't that lucky. My sister Trick killed her. You know, and I was just one of those people that God had his loving, protective arms around me. You know, I'm truly one of those who believe that my destiny was to get to Alcoholics Anonymous. Because there isn't no way. There are people that have been down the same path that I've been down, and they're not here tonight to tell you about it. Why was I chosen to be here tonight? I used to question that. I don't question it anymore. Because the life that I've gained in Alcoholics Anonymous, I know while I'm, I'm here. I have to be an example. Or what can happen if you don't drink and don't use in sobriety? Because it happened for me. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, February the 16th of 1975, and that unhuman of a state, I can remember pleading and begging to God that I wanted to live, I wanted to get my life together before I died. See, during 1974 and 1975, I had went into like a four-month blackout period. And I won't say it was all blackout. But what I did was I drank on a daily basis. I drank as much as I could, and I got as sick. And, and when I was too sick to drink, I just laid in bed with Robitussin M.D., you know, because I always had bronchitis or the flu or something. I was always sick. 
because my immune system had gotten broke down from drinking and using so much, and I always carried a cold, you know. Nose was always running my, you know, when you talked to me, you could hear the weasel in my voice, in my chest. <laughs> I could do like that, and it sounded just like everything inside of me was getting ready to come out. I had bronchitis. And um, during this period, I was in and out of drunks, I was in and out of blackouts, and I was in and out of passing out on somebody's couch or somebody's floor. A coming to in the wintertime in my hometown in, in the snow. Waking up in the snow while I lost my glasses, and I can't see without my glasses. By the way, I have them contacts tonight. <laughs> and I can't see without my glasses. And coming in two, and I done lost one of my shoes. I'm laying out in the snow. Nobody's come by and tried to pick me up. I could have froze to death, you know. And I, today I try not to question God, why am I here? I'm just grateful to be here. You know, February the 14th of 1975 is Valentine's Day. I've been in that state of condition for about three or four months. My birthday came and went. And on uh, that 14th, some guy from Chicago, Illinois, came to see me. And he took one look at me, and he knew that he did not want to spend any time with me. And he said, I'm sorry, but I just can't see you in that kind of condition. I couldn't stay sober long enough. I couldn't even pull an hour together, you know, to spend with this guy. And this man didn't want to spend no time with me anyway, you know. And um, I came to on my mom's couch. My mom was an alcoholic, and that you could smell the uh, the uh, alcohol in the air. My mom was a, a white lightning drinker and uh, corn whiskey. And she was in the bed passed out drunk that night. And I came to, and it seemed to me like it was 12 or 1 o'clock. I really don't know what time it is. I always say 12 or 1 o'clock, but I believe it was a lot earlier than that. Because by this time, I was passing out, drinking and passing out on the couch two or three times a day. And coming to, out of that state and condition, thinking that I had slept all night long and I had only been asleep maybe an hour and ten minutes. You know, that kind of stuff. And I came to, and I was having DTs, and um, I mean weird DTs. A lot of stuff was happening to me, and and uh, out of panic and fear, I ran in there and I jumped in the bed with my mom, and my mom was passed out. She didn't know what was going on, and I crawled in the bed with her. My mom was a big fat mama, you know, and uh, I crawled out behind her and put my arms around there, and I can remember saying. I'm sorry I didn't make anything out of myself that you could be proud of. You know, and I love you, see, because there was not a lot of verbal love in my household. My mom was the kind of mom that uh, if you did wrong or if she come and got you out of jail or if she was real drunk, she could say, you know I love all my kids. She had nine of them. And you know, and I kept saying, but I'm not all your kids. I was not conceived with all your kids. I was not shot out with all your kids. I'm one. I like always wanted my mom to tell me she loved me, not y'all. I wanted to hear I love you. Life is hard, but you can't overcome, you know. 
And I didn't get that. We didn't have that kind of relationship in my family. My kind of relationship is that if somebody beats you up, then I'm going to go beat them up, and that means I love you. You know, that kind of sick kind of love relationship, and, and that's what we had in my family. But that night, I needed more than what that woman had ever given me. And I can remember telling her that I loved her and that I was sorry I hadn't made anything out of myself that she could be proud of, and I was sorry I hadn't turned out like Max. Max was my baby sister. Max had turned out like everybody thought she was going to turn out. She was the perfect young lady. You know, she had done everything that she all, never found the bad boyfriend. I mean, she could always bring her boyfriends home, and they were accepted. And everyone I brought home, they slammed the door on him. Where you find him from? What garbage can you get him out of? <laughs> you know. And uh, don't bring him back here no more. He's not welcome in my house, you know. And, uh, of course, you know I, what kind of feelings I had toward Max. I love Max, but I hated her with a purple passion. And I couldn't understand why they wanted me to be like Max, especially when I was the oldest. Max was two years younger than me. I mean, what had she done that I hadn't done? She, I know Max was doing the same things that I was doing, except that this girl had discretion. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I know Max was into it. Max wasn't no alcoholic, so she didn't have to go running around telling everybody. You know? And Max knew when to cut it off. I did not. <laughs> and um, God must have heard my prayer that night because I, for the first time in my life, I cried out, God help me. Because, see, you see, I had had a vision of dying drunk and knowing that I was going to spend eternity in hell. I didn't. I had very strong religious beliefs and a very strong religious background. I come from a Baptist background, and I knew I didn't want to spend eternity in hell. You know, simple as that. And uh, I screamed out for God to take me out of my pain and to help me. And the next morning, God took me out of my pain. He put me to sleep. And the next morning, I came to, which was February the 15th, it was a Sunday morning, and I came to. And I, and I was upstairs. I don't know how I got upstairs. But um, I came downstairs, and uh, as I was coming downstairs, I felt a cool breeze go up my back, and I felt the wor words perform in my head, and they said, I know why you can't stop drinking. You're an alcoholic. And it was like a 150-watt light bulb went off inside of me. I finally knew what was wrong with me. And by the time I got to the bottom steps, I hollered out to the top of my voice, I know what's wrong with me. I'm an alcoholic. That's why I can't stop drinking. You know, and my family all came out the woodwork. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to call for some help. And my family came out and they said, put that phone down. Don't be calling nobody telling them you're an alcoholic disgracing us. <laughs> now, can you imagine now, the week before they had just got me out of jail. I had just spent six days in jail for a DWI. Well, they called it DWI back there. Today we know that it's a 502 or driving while intoxicated. You know, had just gotten out of jail, and that was my second offense. 
you know, had been in every county jail in every state that I ever been into, either for prostitution, drugs, concealed weapon, or stealing. You know, and you name it, and I've been in jail for it. You know, and they had the nerve to say that I was going to disgrace them, and here I was dying, <laughs> a hopeless and helpless state of mind, knowing that they were going to bury me if I didn't stand ground. And I turned around and cussed everybody out. I said I was going to try not to use any profanity tonight. But cussing in my family is hereditary. <laughs> I really don't want the young people to think, well, she was really a lady. She didn't say not one cuss word. I want you to know that uh, I'm trying very hard. <laughs> it's not so much that I want to impress you, it's just that I like to leave an impression on you. <laughs> but uh, I cussed everybody out, told them if they, if they grabbed the damn phone out of my hand, I'd kill every one of them MFs. And that included my mom, and she was standing there. And my mom saw the desperation in my eyes, and she said, leave her alone. And I dialed zero, which is long-distance operator, because I didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know who I was going to call. I just dialed zero. Today, I believe that it was a power greater than myself directing me to do what was necessary for me. Long-distance operator came on and said, may I help you? And I said, my name is JoJo. I'm an alcoholic. I can't stop drinking. Can you call somebody for me? And this lady called the crisis center. I didn't even know we had an Alcoholics Anonymous in my home group, in my hometown. Never had heard of it before. I didn't know nothing about Alcoholics Anonymous. I just knew that I didn't want to die drunk, and I knew that I was an alcoholic. I knew that. I had never in my life, in my hometown, in my community, heard anybody say, that's an alcoholic. They went to Alcoholics Anonymous, and they recovered. We didn't talk that at home. Our conversation was, what's wrong with her? <laughs> Why she acts like that when she drank? Why can't she drink like a lady? She don't know how to drink. She needs to only have one or two drinks. You never heard them say she ought to quit. And, and always, every time she get drunk, she acts like that. You know, they couldn't understand why I act like that when I got loaded. They didn't act like that. Some of them do. But, but see, they always found fault in me because I was the one who was all center attraction, you know. And these people came out that evening and made a 12-step call on me. And I can remember saying, I need some help. Somebody please come help me. Because I could not. I had the obsession, the allergy the obsession, the compulsion to drink, I could not stop drinking. At this time, I wasn't eating, I wasn't sleeping. I mean, it had been a long time since I was able to sit down and put some breakfast down. You want to talk miracles? Let's talk miracles in my first year. The miracle of staying sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, being nine months clean and sober on this program, setting down to add bacon and a glass of milk was a miracle in my life. Being able to put down breakfast, I could not eat for nine months of being sober.
I could not sleep. Had insomnia so bad. Had a nervous condition that you couldn't believe. I had to pace the floor at night to keep my brains from just coming out of my head because I couldn't control my thoughts. It's been a long road of construction for me. And where I've come from and where I'm at today, it's truly a miracle because I couldn't have done it. Whoa. Said I wasn't going to do this, but like I said, I never know what I'm going to say I do. <laughs> it's like when I made my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, February the 16th of 1975, there were eight people there. There were one black, that's the lady that made the 12-step call on me, and me. And the rest of them were people at least over 40. There were not any young people there. And uh, so I was the youngest thing going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, 23 years old. And my family, they were looking at me, and they were saying, she's gone. She's crazy. You know, but what they couldn't understand is that all that time they had tried to tell me not to drink and not to use, and here's some foreigners <laughs> had gave me the magic potion. And I would come home, and I wasn't drinking. And they had to look at me, and they would say, what's going on? And I had a brother that used to mess with me and all my nieces and nephews, typical family, and they would say, uh, come on, uh, baby, come on and have a drink with me. I said, no, I'm not drinking. What you mean you ain't drinking? You owe it to yourself. You ain't, you been, you ain't had a drink in a long time. I said, no, you drank. Because I knew that I needed to stay sober more than anything in the world. I had made a commitment that I needed to stay sober. And if you're sitting out there, I know right now that you're confused because I said that my AA birthday is November the 3rd, and I'm talking February. Now, I did not go back out and drink, but I had to come off of drugs. I had to detox. It took me nine months to detox off of drugs. And I won't say detox. I just did not let go for nine months. <laughs> And nine months later, because, see, I was making meetings. This is very important that you know that I was making meetings. See, I'm one of those people who believe if you keep coming back, thanks, Liz, if you keep coming back, it'll work for you. All you got to do is have a willingness not to drink. See, I'm so sorry that they changed the 12 traditions where it says the only requirement for membership is the word honest out. Because, see, that's what I had was an honest desire to stop drinking. I did not have an honest desire to stop getting high. But I kept coming back and I was still doing the same things and it's important that you know that because I had an eighth grade education, I was not capable of working. I couldn't work on a job. I was still doing my profession. On the corner, people in Alcoholics Anonymous would come by, off and pick me up on the corner, take me to an AA meeting and said, 
And they dropped me back off on the corner and said, I'll be by Thursday or Friday or Saturday and I'll take you. And I said, I'll be right here on the same corner at the same time. Now, for me, Alcoholics Anonymous immediately started working, even though I wasn't clean and sober. See, because what happened for me is that when I stopped drinking, something happened. I mean, even though I was getting high, I didn't black out, pass out, or get knocked out. And my jobs, they became regular. <laughs> it was like they would come by and, and they'd say, can I see you? Not only that, talk about self-esteem. I got self-esteem right away. <laughs> like I told him, no, 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 it ain't going to be like that. It ain't going to be no more $10. You got, we're coming up on the price. <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous work. <laughs> I said, I got my regulars and they're coming back. <laughs> and my sponsor, God bless those people in Alcoholics Anonymous. They pat me on my back and they said, JoJo, for God's sake, you keep coming back. <laughs> my sponsor whispered something in my ears one day. She said, if you keep coming back and you apply the, the steps to your life, one day, your life will change. I said, it's going to get better. <laughs> she said, yeah, <laughs> it's going to get better. And it did. And there came a time in those first six months, I found myself in California. Time won't allow me to get off into that. I don't even know what time it is, but time won't allow me to get off into that. And um, I found myself in California. And when I got here... God took away the ability to turn a trick. God took it away. I was not able. When I got to California, he just took it away. He said, you're going to have to find a job. I don't know what kind of job you're going to find, but you got to go look. you got to start doing something so that you can start building up some dignity for yourself. See, I had self-esteem, but I didn't have no dignity. <laughs> And I got to you people in California, and I prayed that God would not leave me. And I went out, and I found myself a job with an eighth grade education, and um, it paid $2.15 an hour, and I worked that job. And then better jobs came along, because in November, I surrendered to God, took the ability away from me to smoke another joint, drop another pill, or shoot any dope. So he took that away from me November the 2nd of 1975. That was nine months after I came to this program. And I totally surrendered to you people. And I stood up as a newcomer. And I said, I want what you have, and I'm willing to go to any lens to get it. And people start flocking to me and giving me their telephone numbers and stuff like that. And I worked that job. And then another job came. And another job came. And another job came. And they all was God-sent jobs. You know. And life for me began to regress immediately. And Alcoholics Anonymous. 
my life unfolded just like a bed of roses. Not just with the thorns, but the whole bed with the greenery. And I tell you today, ladies and gentlemen, I have one of the most profoundest, most sobering experiences in my life, and that is that I'm not drinking and using today. That today I do walk in my own personal brand of dignity. And it's all because of you people. I still have family, and I'm almost 11 years sober, who do not understand what you guys have done for me. They still don't understand. They see it, they believe it, and today they respect it. Because, see, we alcoholic make skeptics out of our families. They don't believe in us. Why should they? We always failed them. They knew that we were going to fail because that's our pattern. Alcoholics Anonymous gave me a tool and an ability to fail in Alcoholics Anonymous. I can make mistakes, but I can't fail. As long as I don't drink and as long as I don't use, I cannot be a failure in Alcoholics Anonymous. Opposite of a failure is a successor. So what did that say for me? If I don't fail, I'm a success. I'm the greatest success that Alcoholics Anonymous turned out today. tell you what it's been like since I've been sober. said I wasn't going to get into a long drunk log, but I guess I can't help it. Somebody out there needed to hear it. <laughs> you need to know that you don't have to feel different. You need to know that I've done what you've done, and it's okay if you be honest enough to tell somebody about it. You don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to die with those dark secrets in your life because you don't want nobody to know what you've done because you don't want nobody to judge you. You're going to have to free yourself to become one of us so that you can live comfortably and peacefully with yourself. See, we're only with you for an hour and a half. And when you leave us, you're going to be with yourself. You're going to think with yourself, for yourself, and to yourself. And if you ain't in peace with that, you won't be by yourself because you're going to go because you can't stand to be with you. See, today I know what it's like to want to be alone. <laughs> there are times when I get telephone calls and I think, uh, I really don't feel like talking. Ain't nothing wrong. I just simply don't feel like talking. If it's a state of emergency, I sometimes I turn on the, uh, my code of phone and then, yeah, I got a lot of babies. And they always want to stay in touch. Don't nothing be wrong with them. I'm gonna. I, I'm definitely gonna get me a, a telephone put in the bathroom because I cannot use it in peace. And uh, you know, I scan it and I think, well, she's not desperate, so I'm not calling right back. I like time to myself today, and I remember the time that I couldn't stand to be in the room by myself. And I like time by myself today. I like being alone. I like being with me. I like who I am. I look at me and I think, gee, Jojo, you're acting like a lady today. You know? And that makes me feel good because that was a goal of mine. I got to you people and uh, there were certain things that began to happen in my first year of clean sobriety. And when I was about four months sober, I was standing at a coffee pot in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and there was a young man standing up there, and 
<laughs> he said, uh, hello, what's your name? And I said, my name is Jojo. And he said, my name is Jerome. And uh, would you like a ride home? And I said, hell no. <laughs> I got to tell you guys, I'm married to Jerome. <laughs> Lord willing, in the creek don't rise in January, and we'll be married legally nine years, and we've been together legally eleven. <laughs> I've given all my time up. I live with him. I cohabitated and see in eighteen months before I married him. And you know, it's like it's been a row. I mean, now you want to talk about being a spiritual experience? <laughs> <laughs> That's been a real spiritual experience, to be married to another member of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. And our life have not been, it's been a struggle. In the last three or four years, it's gotten very easy for me. But in the beginning, for the first, oh, I guess eight years of our, our relationship, it was a real struggle. So, but there was something inside of us that was determined to want to work this thing out and, and so we stayed together and for that I'm, I'm grateful that there was enough knowledge around of, of something that happened inside of us that made us make a commitment that no matter what went down in our relationship that we would sleep in the same bed and that's what we've done for the last going on well ten and a half years we no matter what went down I don't care if I wasn't speaking to him and we hadn't talked in a week <laughs> I crawled in bed with him <laughs> resentful <laughs> if his feet touched mine I'd almost jump out the bed <laughs> but see if we had had the answers and we had to know how to work a relationship and a perfect relationship uh, we wouldn't have been having no problems in the first place you know, we'd have had all the answers. But, I, you know, Jerome's going to be talking for you in the morning, and I really don't want to steal his story. <laughs> I want to give him a little bit to play with. I got to share a couple of things before I sit down, and, and I like to share some real good stuff that has happened in my recovery with you, and that is uh, not only have... I stayed sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I've gotten very active in Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I've gotten the, to be the example, and I've gotten an opportunity to, to be able to go to different conventions and speak, and I've worked in H&I work, and I've watched miracles being performed in my life, and uh, uh, part of sobriety have brought me some benefits. See, when I was out there drinking and using, I don't know about you, but I used to do three things. I used to wish, dream, and hope. You know, and I'd be over there wasted, and God forbid if I was on some chocolate mescaline. Because chocolate mescaline likes for you to be quiet, and you want to just think. <laughs> and I'd lay off in a corner, and I'd drop a couple of tabs, and I'd lay off in the corner, and I'd be heavy into jazz music and meditation. <laughs> say, God, Georgia, you look like you're really enjoying yourself. What's on your mind? And I tell him, you know what? It's too heavy for you. <laughs> you wouldn't understand. 
But my dreams and my wishes and hopes were, it's like when I was back there, you know, I wanted my life to be respectable. I wanted to some man to bounce me home and say, look, Mom, what I found. You know? And, and I wanted kids. And when I was 19 years old, they had told me that I'd never be able to have any children. And I had to go through emergency sur surgery. And I wasn't going to be able to bear any children. And, you know, that kind of set me back. And, and always, since I was a little girl, the first car I ever realized that I wanted was a Corvette. Now, here I am with an eighth grade education, still selling 49 cent pair of underwear. You know, we're talking $20,000 car. You know, I, mean, I thought this. I couldn't let these people know what my thoughts were. They wouldn't have not understood. They would have said, you know, you, you know, went crazy. Now, you know, you give this girl another drink. <laughs> Uh, give us some more masculine because she's really tripping. And uh, anyway, I've gotten a chance to watch all those dreams come true for me and Sarani. And, and that's been a real trip because when I met Jerome, he bounced me home to his mom and his dad. You know, and I never will forget his mom was laying down in the bed and uh, the second room and his dad was in the front room. And when he walked me in, uh, and uh, he introduced me to his father. His father was sitting in a recliner chair, and he was a little old man. And uh, he asked me, he says, uh, you sure is pretty. What's your name? I said, my name is Jojo. And he said, oh, yeah? And he, immediately he turned around and he said, honey, this is the one you need to marry. <laughs> I said, he's kind of fast. <laughs> And, and me, you know, being the typical woman I was, because I see Jerome was more than I could handle. Uh, what had happened is the night that we went out, see, I, I got to share this with you, is that um, I, at this time I was living with a girlfriend of mine because I didn't have any place to live in California. And uh, she had told me, because I, I was into going to meetings every day, two and three meetings, catching the bus at four o'clock in the morning to go to work. By this time I was working at a convalescent hospital in Hollywood. And I would take the, the, the bus from Hollywood back home. I mean, I was up at 4 o'clock in the morning getting ready to catch the bus. And uh, she said, oh, honey, stay at home. God, you, you got four months of sobriety. You, you five months of sobriety. You've been sober. And uh, you can stay home and play cards with us. And we're going to play some jazz. And a couple of fellas going to come over. And I had already met Jerome in a meeting. And wouldn't let him drive me home, you know. And um, so he came over and knocked on the door. And I, you remember when the window pane blue jeans was out? I had on a pair of them, and uh, they always make you look a little wider than what you was, you know. But uh, I remember opening up the door, and here, here he come. I said, don't I know you? He said, yeah, and he was with a friend named Jerome. So two Jeromes come in, and um, <laughs> and I, don't, I didn't know what happened because I turned around. But later he told me he hunched his friend and said, ooh, look at that, you know. <laughs> But we went on to sit down, and they, you know, they got me to stay at home, and we played some big with and turned on some, some jazz music, and, and, and I love jazz. And one of my favorites is Freddie Hubbard's First Light. Now, that's real old jazz. And, uh, and I, you know, I saw him patting his feet and whistling to the tune of the music, and I said, my, I mean, he's got something in common here, you know. And uh, he asked me, he said, uh, would you ladies like, ladies like to have a pizza? And I said, yeah. 
So he said, well, why don't you call Pizza Man and have Pizza Man come over. So, oh, Pizza Man came over and uh, brought us some pizza and Jerome went in his pocket and brought out a lot of money like this, you know. And that 151 light bulb went off again. Because <laughs> don't forget, you know, I, I didn't realize God had cleared my life up at that time, right? I mean, I was still into money. Didn't have none, so I was into it. <laughs> I mean, the man peeled off a $20 bill and told the beast, man, kids, <laughs> Man got glass, he got a little style, you know. And the more, and then I got to looking at him because there was a big mirror behind me. And the more I looked at him, the better he got to looking. <laughs> Said to myself, mm-hmm. I said, what you doing Friday? <laughs> I said, you want to come by and take me to the movies Friday? He said, yeah, I'll come by and take you to the movies. So that Friday he came by and took me to the movies with his sister named Rita and Jerome. And, and we all went to the movies and uh, he was so decent and polite. And when we came home, we dropped him off. He was going to take me home. And uh, I said, how old are you? He said, 26. I said, he said, how old are you? No, he was 28. 26, I believe, 26. And uh, he said, how old are you? I said, um, I'm 23. Do you live alone? He said, yeah. I said, let's go over to your place. <laughs> Doing a little 13 step in here, you know. <laughs> we walked over to his place, and there was a note on the door. And I reached up and grabbed the note off. Opened it up and read it. Says I came by to see you, wasn't at home, a call later, whoever. I forgot her name. <laughs> he put the key in the door, and I opened the door. And walked in, and as I walked in, I gave my hand him back the piece of paper over my shoulder. I said, you can call her and tell her she don't need to come by anymore. As I walked through the door. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the next day, I mean that night, you guys, you don't have to tell you what went on. I'll leave that for your imagination, you guys. We're good at that. <laughs> the next morning, uh, this man was up at my door. At four o'clock in the morning, get ready to take me to work. Right on. <laughs> and I got off of work that evening, and he was there to pick me up. And uh, we went back over to his place. And as I walked down the hall, uh, he was behind me, and he said, I guess I've been the leader, haven't I? He was behind me, and he said, uh, oh, by the way, I took care of that little matter you told me to take care of. Shouldn't have never told me that. And I said, what's matter? He said, oh, I told that girl not to come by here anymore as I switched in his door. I said, yeah, I got him. That's all right. Now, that was afterwards. And see, what I did know is that that money that he had paid Pizza Man with was his welfare check. I was really mad. <laughs> I was really mad then, yeah, you know, and the man wasn't even working. It was an A.A. bomb. 
five years over. I see you. I see you out there. <laughs> I got a couple up here. Every time I say something, he needs a puncher and he's dying like this. <laughs> I've been checking you out. You know, we, uh, we speakers always zone into people, you know. And um, anyway, um, 18 months later, we walked down the aisles of a church and we got married. And that was incredible because I got married in the church where he was born and raised and his father who had, and his whole family had been members of this church like 40 or 50 years. And we walked down the aisles of the church and got married. It was incredible. And um, about a year later, you know, I came to out of a sleep one night and I told him I wanted a baby. And he said, well, what do you want me to do about it? <laughs> he knew I couldn't have any kids. Well... I said, Jerome, you know, I had a, a vision or a dream. I don't know what it was. And I said, um, I want to call the adoption center and see if they'll let us have one of their babies down there. And they said, well, just do whatever you need to do. Now. And I'm going back to sleep. And you turn back on, you went back to sleep. <laughs> and the next day I got up and I called the Los Angeles Adoption Center and the lady said, don't have any class and too much tact. I said, my name is Jojo, and uh, my husband is named Jerome, and we two alcoholics over here on 21st Street. <laughs> we want to we want to know if you'll let us have one of your babies down there. <laughs> and the lady said, uh, "Would you like to come in for an interview first? <laughs> and and we went in, and uh, we done a thorough fourth and fifth step with him. <laughs> I should say fearful because I, I said, you know, you think it's really necessary that we tell them all of this? You know, because listen, you hear my days and send back for our arrest records and stuff, and Jerome been to the nut house twice. <laughs> and, you know, we got to have a lot of hearts going down in here asking these people. These people send out for our workers. Even our social worker says, you know, I really don't know what I can do for you. But, uh, you know, all we can do is just do what we can. And, and she knew, and I don't know if you know anything of how the social services system works, but they knew that if they sent our records out of town, we definitely would not have been approved. So they work with us within the, the state of California. And lo and behold, 15 months later, you know, they sent us some papers that said that we had been approved. For parenthood, and as soon as they found the right little kid for us, that they would get back in contact with us. Nine months later, <laughs> they called us and said that they had a little boy that was born September the 5th, 1979, that was in Downey, California, and wanted us to know, wanted to know if we were interested and would we like to go out and see this baby. Jerome answered that telephone call. I was at work, and... Uh, he said, you know, the lady went on to share some other stuff, and he didn't hear it because all he heard was September the 5th of 1979 because September the 5th is Jerome's birthday, you know. And we were able to go out to Downey and see this little boy, and he blew me away. I started boohooing and crying, and I said, Jerome had to pull off when we left the people's house. I did maintain till we got in the car. And as soon as we got in the car, I mean, tears just start flowing and snot come out everywhere. <laughs> Jerome pulled over for me to regroup. 
I said, I want that baby. And um, the next week, I think it was the next week, we were able to go get him and bring him home for, um, I think it was six hours we had him. And we took him over Mama, over to Grandma's. And he was running through the kitchen. I was the happiest person in the world. And then they told us that we could come and get him the next week and bring him home. And I was able to go get that little boy August the 16th. I think it was the 19th. Because his birthday is September the 5th. He was home with us about a week and a half, two weeks before his birthday came. And we went to Downey and got this little baby and took him home with us. And that little boy has been the apple of my eye. Because this past August, or well, this month, he was with in our home for six years. And that's incredible that God and Alcoholics Anonymous allowed that to happen. You know, you have to understand, Jerome and I are the kind of people they take kids from. They don't give kids to. You know. And they gave us a little baby to raise. Leslie asked us earlier this evening when we were at dinner or either at, at uh, breakfast, she says, does your little boy go with you everywhere you go? And I said, now that he's bigger, we try to take him everywhere we can with us. We don't do too much that he can't participate in. I can't tell you what it's like, except that in Alcoholics Anonymous, miracles do happen. There isn't anything in Alcoholics Anonymous that I haven't wanted that I haven't gotten. I remember getting a job and working for the postal system and Jerome and I wanted a new house. Prayed to God that he would give us a new house, and he did. I saw the walls go up. I forgot to tell God where I wanted that house put. <laughs> he put my home in what? In California. And today I'm glad that he did because it's very important for me that I be an asset to my community. And there ain't no better way for me to be an asset than to be right in the environment, especially the kind of environment that I came from. Those people out there don't know who I am. A guy came by the house the other day and we were standing outside. He made me feel so good. He told me and Jerome, you and your wife are the respectable ones on the block. There's something special about you guys. You imagine how I felt? It was like, and he thought we were, you know, holy rotors. What church you go to? <laughs> he was out campaigning for God, for Christ, you know, and, and we shared with him that Alcoholics Anonymous was our church. That this is where I belong. This is where I do the Lord's work. This is what I have to do. See, I'm one of those people who believe that church is great. I think it's the greatest thing that ever came to pass for those but there's also a lot of people that have this disease that's seeking an answer. And they go to church because they don't know any place else to go. And we know that church has the answers. But for hardcore alcoholics who become agnostics, not that they, they are atheists, but agnostics, and that's people who have lost faith in human life. Because they can't understand if there's a God, why is my life the way that it is? They don't understand that. They go to church looking for answers. And when they don't find the kind of answers that they want, they leave church. You know, I believe that we're almost like an intervention. Because here we express to them, we're not religious. We do live by spiritual principles. 
Whatever concept you come here, you can build on that with. You don't have to have the same concept that I have of God. I believe that God is in this room. I believe that every time I move and breathe that God is with me. There's been too many miracles in my life for me to say that God hasn't been in my life because I know today I would not be who I am if there was not a higher power that I believed in. You know, I know that there's a God when I ride out by the ocean in my hometown and I got my little boy in the back seat and the sun rays are coming through the windshield and I look over to the ocean, tears run down my eyes because of gratitude because I'm so grateful that I'm able to recognize at that instant where I'm at. My little boy looking in the mirror saying, what are you looking at me for, Mom? <laughs> and I said, well, I love you. And he comes over me and put his shoulders, put his head on my shoulder and says, I think you're the greatest mom in the world, Mama. I love you. He's six years old, you know. He thinks Jerome walk on water. <laughs> you've given me. I have a good job today. I went back to school and got my high school diploma or my GED. I went to college. I went to college and I came out of college with a 3.2 or a 3.8 grade point average. And that's pretty good for a person who have a real eighth grade education. <laughs> uh, you know, when I discovered that I was smart, I quit. I said, shit, I don't need to go to college. <laughs> I'm smart. <laughs> you know? There's been a lot of sadness in my life, and time won't allow me to get into it because I am going to close up. But uh, I had... Some people in my immediate in my immediate family that had to die of disease. I had a mom and a brother that died uh, three and a half months apart. My brother got killed in July. My mom died in November of this disease. I had a sister who was in jail at the same time that my mom died. She came out with the disease that I have, looking for answers and couldn't find them. And she went out one night, and uh, because of this disease, she didn't come back. You know, uh, she was murdered by her trick. We never found out who he was or anything, you know. And that's been real hard because she was a sister that believed in me when nobody else believed in me, especially in the beginning of my sobriety when I was still getting high but I wasn't drinking and people would come up and i have a tall glass of orange juice and they'd say, uh-huh, I know you was drinking. And she'd come up to him because she'd hear him and say, leave her the fuck alone. <laughs> she never said to me, what are you drinking? She said, Judge, I know you ain't drinking. I can look in your eyes and tell that you ain't drinking, you know. And I can remember when I went home to Mama's funeral, and uh, Mary Alice, I went to see Mary Alice in jail before I came back to California. And, uh, and I shared with her, I wish you would come to California. Maybe I could get you into one of the rehabilitation homes out there, you know. And uh, she says, I I'm going to come, you know. And Mary Alice called me collect from the county jail. And... Um, that was the last time we talked, and and she said as soon as she got out and got her shit together, that she was going to come to California. And I'm here to tell you that Mary Alice didn't get her shit together. I got to, I had to go home and get it together for her, you know. And it, it brought back home to me. And see, and I know 
about this disease. Because what happened for me is it let me know. See, some people have to die in order for us to live. And we can't always choose who those people are going to be. Because believe me, if I had had any choice in the matter, it would not have been my mama. It would not have been my sister or my brother. You know. I remember when I was a little girl, I used to cry. I could think about it so hard and cry, wondering what would I do if my mom ever died. God, I wouldn't have nobody. You know. And I tell you what happened for me when my mom died. You know who I had? I had the whole world. I had a million alcoholics that I could turn to who was there at my disposal. All I had to do was pick up the phone and dial a number and say, I'm hurting. My mom died, and I don't want to drink or use. And they were there. Do you need any money? Is there anything that I can do? I got long-distance phone calls from people I didn't even know who they were. You know, when my baby came into my life, there was a white lady in my life that I had met on a committee meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous who said, before, before we got the baby, she knew that we were in the process. She said, uh, since your mom's gone, I'd like to know if I could be the baby's godmother. And I named my little boy after her husband. And that woman is still in my life, and she's the greatest. I've not met a woman that was so graceful, you know. There's two people in the world that I'd really like to be like. She's one of them, and my sponsor in Ohio is the second one. And that's, that's a painful situation for me because I'm losing her due to a terminal illness. And I'm going home the end of this month to be able to spend a week with her. And I don't know if it's going to be the last time I see her or not. But I'm praying to God that he just let her live long enough for me to get there to see her again. Because, you know... When people make 12-step calls on you and they stay in your life and they watch you grow, there ain't too many words. You know, when we talk on the phone, we don't even have to say, I love you. There's just a silence that come over the line. And I know what she's saying to me and how she loves me. Because when I was home last year and I came back and I called and she was all depressed. And I said, Nan, why are you depressed? She said, because I miss you. I can't believe that I feel this way about I, she got six kids and some girls old as I am. And I know they have good relationships. I know they have. She's crazy about her kids. But there's something that me and her have that's just unique and different. And yes, I pre-grieved. I've been pre-grieving all year long. I, You know, I cry sometimes. And I wake up in the middle of the night. I'm thinking about her. And I wake up. Tears are running down my eyes. And I'm thinking, I really don't want to lose her. But she's been such a, a fringe benefit in my, my years of sobriety. And for that I have to be grateful, you know. You've given me so much in sobriety, I can't explain it to you. You know, God's been with me. He's been good. And the life that I have today, I work for the United States Post Office today. And uh, I have, uh, I'm real signed uh, in the EAP program, which is Employees Assistance Program. And uh, I'm, I bid it on a full-time position in that area, and I would like to have it, and it's okay if it comes through. I would be elated if it comes through, but I wouldn't be devastated if I don't get it. Because today I've come so far, just having a job makes me feel good, you know. I guess I done ran out. I don't have very much to say. No more than to say thank you for what you've done for me, you know. And uh, that if you knew 
If you want what I have, you have to keep coming back to get it. I just can't reach out and give it to you. If I could reach out and give it to you, believe me, I would be campaigning for Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> this is a program of want. There's a lot of people that need this program that will never ever grace the halls of it. But you gotta want this program to get it. You gotta want to get sober. You gotta want a better life for yourself. You gotta want to have self-esteem, self-confidence and respect. Because if you get it for yourself, you can't help but other people will recognize you have that for yourself and they will give it to you. I go places today and they say, I know you. I heard your voice. I knew your name was Jojo. And you're a lady in my book. I had people come and tell me, I don't even know who they are, how I've helped them. For that, I'm internally grateful that you allow me to be a channel that I can work through for alcoholics. I have a poem that I like to sum this up with that tells my whole story. The name of it is The Touch of the Master's Hand. And I'd like to thank the committee for asking me to come out and share. I mean, when I do my poem, I'm going to sit down. I can never tell you how much you've done for me. I just, you know, if I could come out in the audience and just swoop the whole of you up into my arm, that's how I would like to do it. But I would like to say that there's something that has happened tonight that has transpired that nothing will ever be able to take the place of it. And you need to know that we've touched lives, that you and I have touched souls tonight. You know, when they talk about in the big book, trudging the road of happy destiny, maybe I might see some of you on the way. I have to say, God, if I don't see you in the beginning, I got the opportunity to see you tonight. And that's where I'm at. That's how I feel. And uh, this poem that I'm about to read, a friend of mine, we worked together. He was on my route. This was his poem that he used to end with. And he died. And um, I guess I'm going to keep it alive for him. But it's called The Touch of the Master's Hand. It says, "'Twas battered and scarred in the auctioneer thought. It was scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. "'What am I bidding, good folks?' he cried. "'Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar. Then two, only two. Two dollars. Who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice. Going for three, but no.' From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loose strings, he played a melody pure and sweet as a Carolinian angel sings. The music ceased and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, what am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with the bow. A thousand dollars. Who'll make it two? Two thousand. Who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, and going and gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them cried. What we do not quite understand. What changed its worth? Swiftly came the reply. 
the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin is auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game and he travels on. He is going once, he is going twice, he's going and almost gone. But the master comes and the foolish crowd can never quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that's wrought by the touch of the master's hand. God bless you, thank you, and keep on going.